Hey everyone, there is some strong language in today's episode, including a couple of F-bombs. I've not beeped anything out, so I thought I should let you know about it beforehand. Hey everybody, today's show is brought to you by Hoopsters, a basketball-themed board game only available at hoopsters.store. I like playing board games because it gives me a chance to connect with my kids or my friends, and for me, the best games are a lot of fun, but they're easy to learn, right? I don't like checking the rules on the inside of the box to lay every other move. Great games require some strategy, but also a little bit of luck, and they don't take forever to complete a game. I'm not a fan of those five-hour Monopoly sessions. So I can tell you firsthand that Hoopsters is all of these things. You can play a quick game in 15 minutes or longer, one in 30. It brings all of the thrill of basketball together with the strategy of backgammon. And I just can't tell you enough about how much fun it is. Each set is handcrafted here in Central Ohio, so head to hoopsters.store, and if there aren't any sets available, you can drop in your email address and we'll let you know as soon as we have some more. That's hoopsters.store. Now on to the show. Hi again, everybody. This is Pete in Almost Real Time. It's just a few hours before Episode 3 of Season 2 goes live. So I wanted to thank everybody who reached out to me after Episode 2. I had expressed some concern because that was a longer episode, around 40 minutes. Quite a few people had some things to say about it and wrote in. And I appreciate those who added that they thought keeping it one episode instead of breaking it down to two was probably the right thing to do couple of things to share with you before we get to today's show. First of all, uh, you may know at the website PeteBrownSays.com, there's a link called Cup of Coffee, where you can buy me a cup of coffee. It helps you. You can throw in a couple of bucks to help cover the production expenses of the show. And I got my first cup of coffee this past week, and that was super exciting to see. I appreciate that from loyal listener Michaela. Also, if you listen to storytelling podcasts, you probably know the Risk podcast. Along with The Moth, it's really one of the the two big podcasts. Risk is differentiated by the fact that the stories that are told have some pretty serious stakes to them. And they do live shows all over the country, and I saw that they were coming to Ohio, so so I submitted a pitch to them. And they sent me back a very nicely written rejection letter explaining that the story I had pitched to them sounded more like an NPR story, and that in general for risk, if it can be on NPR, it's probably not right for that show. It was the day of the deadline when I got that rejection and I sat down and I thought to myself, what's the one story I don't think I'd ever want to tell anybody else? And then I wrote that up as a pitch and I submitted it and I got passed on to the next round. I submitted an audition and the end result is that next Friday, February 8th, if you are in Cincinnati, I'll be performing a story at the Risk live podcast taping. This event's at Ludlow Garage. I think tickets are 20 or $30. I'm told it sells out quickly. But So if you're in the area and you want to come see me perform the story that I thought I would never tell anybody, then stop on by. I'll be excited to meet you. I'll put a link to the event in the show notes. I've been putting it out on social media on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. So if you follow the show, this probably isn't news to you. But I'm very excited for it. I've been going through their story coaching process, actually, and I'm learning quite a bit. And folks, you know, also at PeteBrownSays.com, there's a page called Submit where you can go and read a prompt and you can click a button right on that page and record a response to that prompt. And I like to collect them up and put them together every couple of shows. This feature was getting really popular at the end of season one, but I think this long 10-month layoff between season one and season two, it's going to take some time to get some traction. I have been asking people to share a story of something they did after saying what the hell. And I got a couple of responses that I want to share with you now. I had one of those what-the-hell moments. It was right before I asked a girl to marry me. 
Actually, I had two of those. I was just listening to episode one, season two of your podcast, and I thought you missed an opportunity to go a little deeper on some of your driving skills. Every time I rent a car, I instinctively just check the no box on all those insurance questions. It's really expensive, and I kind of feel like you don't need it if you have good car insurance. And then I remember that time when Pete Brown rented a car and checked yes on all those boxes. Five minutes after that, drove that car off the lot the wrong way and proceeded to blow out all four tires. In that case, that was a pretty good decision on Pete Brown's part. So I guess I don't really know how to end this story other than to say, if you're Pete Brown and you're renting a car and you're asked about insurance, always check the yes box. Oh, man. You know, you do so many things in your career, but you wreck one rental car and it's all anybody seems to remember. And also that first contributor I've since learned has uh, since decided to say what the hell to a third marriage. So congratulations to him on his pending nuptials. Uh, I'm, I'm totally sure the third time will be the charm. All right, everybody. Super Bowl's in a couple of days. This story has some Super Bowl stuff in it, some football stuff, some snack stuff. I'm really excited to share it with you, so let's just get to it. Here's Season 2, Episode 3. What the hell versus what the fuck. I had an uncle whom I always liked very much and who used the phrase, what the hell, often and in the best possible way. He was married to my mom's oldest sister. And what I liked about him was that when I was a kid, he spoke to me like an adult, asked me for my opinion on things, and was always thoughtful about what I had said. He always asked what I was reading or if I was working on my writing very much and how was it going. I try to emulate his uncling now with my two nieces and two nephews. Here's an example of what I mean by he used the phrase, what the hell, in the best possible way. One time, we were in a museum in Washington, D.C. My aunt and uncle had taken me and my cousin Jean to Washington, D.C. for a few days when we were around 12 and 13 years old. I don't remember what museum it was, but we were slowly wandering through it when a tour group came by. My uncle and I both stopped and listened to the tour guide for a moment, and then, as the group moved off, he said to me, let's join up with this tour. I mean, what the hell? I like this use of what the hell, the way you use it as an interjection to justify doing something when you can't really think of a good reason for doing it. It throws just a tiny bit of caution to the wind and gives you that bridge to action that you might need. A little bump, sometimes a shove. Want to have a costume party? What the hell? Why not? You usually don't need an answer when you use what the hell like this. Instead, you need to gas up the car for a road trip. The other sense of what the hell is as an interrogative question, a vehement way to ask what exactly is going on. What the hell? Or expanded, what the hell is going on? I don't think this form of the question is looking for an answer either. I think instead it's a way to express what not understanding something is making you feel. Frustrated, perhaps. Angry. Afraid. Famously and tellingly, when the current president called for his controversial and, frankly, racist ban on Muslim immigration, he used this form of the question, saying the ban would be in effect, quote, 
until we figure out just what in the hell is going on. Can figure out what the hell is going on. I'm not a fan of this president, just so you know. And if you are, that's fine. We can still be friends. I sure don't want to take this show down a political rabbit hole. But I recognize in his phrasing, just what in the hell is going on, both his sense of anger or frustration or fear. What in the hell is going on? But what the hell, while a great justification for doing something spontaneous like joining a tour or having a party or taking a road trip, well, it's a pretty paltry foundation, I think, when it's trying to justify a national policy on immigration. The reaction in many circles, or at least in the ones I roll in, to this policy pronouncement and others has been the now ubiquitous WTF. Internet shorthand for what the fuck? which I learned traces its origins back to Usenet groups back in the mid-1980s. WTF more or less seems to mean, I cannot believe what is happening at this exact moment, or possibly an even stronger form of incredulity. It tends to be used almost exclusively in a negative context. Mark Maron's same-named podcast, WTF, is renowned for its fantastic interviews with interesting people, but Maron himself says, he was having a good deal of personal issues when he first started and named the show, and that his first 100 episodes are, quote, mostly me talking to celebrities about my problems. The thing that I want to say is that when what the hell is considered ample justification for complex policy, then we're definitely living in a WTF world. And there aren't any signs of it letting up. The time when irony seemed to capture how we felt about things seems quaint now and antiquated. We sped past outrage years ago, and now we find ourselves at WTF. And here's the thing. We're still going. And while I don't know what will replace our WTF moment, I do know that we don't yet seem to be anywhere near peak disbelief. I think we're missing something in between what the hell and WTF. I really do. Something that expresses the sense of wonder and surprise that can underpin pleasant disbelief. For example, in my pantry at home, I have a button installed. When I notice the dog food is getting low in the bin, I press the button, and two days later, a 50-pound bag of dog food shows up on my doorstep. I know, right? WTF doesn't fit this experience at all. And what the hell, well, what the hell is what I said when I was thinking through the environmental consequences of packing and shipping that 50-pound bag right to my house. Eh, what the hell? Get the button. It's only five bucks. Sorry, Earth. I suppose that here I should address the use of the phrase, what the what, and expose it for what I believe it to be. Bad writing, created to mollify a network sensor or a standards and practices department somewhere. If you find yourself using what the what, ever, in any context, just, please, just stop it. My uncle used to take long walks in the morning along the Chicago shoreline. And by morning, I mean 5 a.m., and by long, I mean five-plus miles at a super brisk pace. Once, when I was 12 and staying with my aunt and uncle overnight, he invited me to go along the next morning, and I said, sure. I struggled to keep pace with him, to be honest, and when we got back to their apartment, I sat down on the couch and promptly fell asleep in a seated position. My uncle took a picture of me sleeping like this with his Kodak disc camera, and once it was developed, he put it on his refrigerator. He thought it was hilarious. I never developed the same walking habit he had. Walks through the suburb where I live, though pretty, have an awful lot of sameness to them. But I have on occasion taken long walks when a work problem wouldn't rest in my brain. I'm sure I looked insane, traipsing down the sidewalk, talking aloud to nobody, waving my hands about. 
but the walk helps quiet the part of my mind that was shouting so loud that I couldn't hear the part of my mind that was working on the problem. Walt Whitman was a fan of walks for this purpose, as was Wordsworth. So, you know, that's some auspicious writing, what with the three of us there together in one sentence, Walt Whitman, William Wordsworth, and me, Pete Brown, just three peas in a pod. My uncle really seemed driven on his walks. He didn't have the gait of someone letting their mind wander through the morass. And I'll note, he didn't wear workout clothes for his morning stroll. An old pair of dress shoes, slacks, and a sweater maybe, and that was it. Professionally, he was a commercial realtor, so it may be he used his walks to organize the day's calls in his mind. But even this is just my supposition. I really don't know the first thing about what a workday was like in the 1980s for a commercial realtor in Chicago. I'm guessing it involved a lot of phone calls. But I mean, what the hell? The other thing my uncle did was argue with me about the Chicago Bears and the Cleveland Browns and which team was better at any given time. It was a fun argument, the kind I could have at 12 with a grown-up at a holiday party and not get too stressed out about it. Over the years, he would send me clippings from the newspapers when the Bears were doing well or, more likely, when the Browns were not. He'd underline the sentences which he thought were well-wrought turns of phrase. Looking back, I'm not sure if he was teaching me about sports or about writing, because I remember telling him early on that I wanted to be a writer, and he nodded and said that he knew I'd be a good one, and that I should write at least an hour a day and see what happens. I mean, he said, what the hell? I have to admit this hour a day thing is something I've never been too good at. In college and graduate school and on into my adult life, I was a streaky guy. I might write for 10 or 12 hours a week, but usually in just one or two sittings. And then there were long stretches where my attention was otherwise occupied. Switching gears was always tough for me. In an hour into writing something, I felt like I was just getting stuck back in. In no way was I ready to hop back out. I mentioned this to a writing professor I had as an undergraduate, and her advice to me was to start each hour by retyping the last two pages I had written the previous day. It was something she did, on an actual typewriter, by the way, that she used while sitting on the floor. Something she did to get back into the world of the piece more quickly. That's sound advice too, I guess, but I've never done it. 22-year-old me sure as hell wasn't going to do it. Retype something I had already written? Are you insane? But since starting this podcast, this hour-a-day thing has become more or less real for me. It's the only way I can piece these episodes together. Most weeks I'm getting in at least three hours, typically where my lunch should be. Sometimes big projects at work take this time away from me, and sometimes I find ways to get it back. If you don't remember much about the 1985 Chicago Bears, honestly, you're missing out. They were a fun group of oddballs who came close to an undefeated season en route to routing the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl in January of 1986. If names like William the Refrigerator Perry, Walter Sweetness Payton, or Samurai Mike Singletary don't ring a bell, just head to YouTube and type in Super Bowl Shuffle, and you'll see just what I mean. It was a tough year to be arguing for the Cleveland Browns, by the way, even though at an even 8-8, eight and eight, we had somehow eked out the AFC Central title and made the playoffs, only to lose in the first round to Miami. 
I can remember trying to stay safely away from sports as a conversation topic when my aunt and uncle visited that year. I'm sure he got some good-natured teasing in, and I probably rolled with it. If you listen to season one of the show, you might have the impression that teasing is something I struggle with, and you're right. 14-year-old me had a hard time distinguishing good-natured teasing from the playground beatdowns that I endured in grade school. Sometimes, 47-year-old me has the same problem, if I'm being honest, which is, after all, the whole point of this show. Now, I always liked the Super Bowl as a kid. It was the one day of the year when my dad bought good snacks. And I'm talking genus pizza rolls and real Doritos, not the store brand, and Chex Mix. I usually ate so many snacks during the game that it ended up just counting for my dinner. This is a tradition I try to maintain with my kids, running out to the grocery store Sunday morning and just loading up the cart with all manner of snackage. I go way overboard, truth be told, but I justify it by saying to myself, Hey, I'm a grown-ass man. What the hell? I'm a grown-ass man, much like what the hell is a generic justifier, one meant to communicate that I'm doing something that's against my own self-interest and fully aware of this fact and basically saying it's okay because I'm a grown-up. Usually I say it when I buy a bunch of sugar cereals, although when I was younger and not much of a grown-ass man at all, it was used to justify things like the screaming kicking chicken, which was a shot you could order at this one bar in my college town. It was 151-proof rum, wild turkey, and Tabasco sauce. Just trust me, grown-ass man or not, you do not want to do that to your insides. The Bears, as I said, played the New England Patriots in the 1985 Super Bowl. It was the first Super Bowl appearance for either team, although the Bears, who were only the second team to win 15 games in a single NFL season, were 10-point favorites over the Pats, who snuck into the playoffs at last wildcard spot and had to win three playoff games on the road to get to the big game. Ten points is a pretty big line for a Super Bowl. It basically predicts the Bears would win by at least two scores. I was pulling for the Pats, mostly because I knew my uncle would call just as soon as the Bears won. But it was clear early on that the odds makers in Vegas had greatly underestimated Chicago. While the Bears were only up 23-3 at the half, New England's offense had managed a grand total of negative 19 yards. Basically, the entire first half, they were going the wrong way. On the ground to Craig James. Caught in the backfield. And a fumble, and the Bears have it again. I'd seen enough. At halftime, passing up the prospects of more snacks, I headed down into our house's unfinished basement, where I spent time taking apart my 10-speed. I honestly don't recall why I was taking my bike apart that winter. There was nothing wrong with it. I think I just wanted to understand how it worked, but taking it apart only served nominally in that capacity. And as you might suspect, I never got it put back together again. When I got bored of this, I strapped some old roller skates to my shoes and skated haltingly around the basement. If you're of a certain age, you know what kind of skates I'm talking about here. If you have no clue what I'm talking about, just bing vintage roller skates and you'll see what I mean. Also, shout out to my old peeps at Microsoft with that bing reference. Good times. By the way, have you ever seen the documentary The Queen of Versailles? It's about Jackie and David Siegel, who were building the largest and most expensive single-family residence in the United States back when the economic crisis hit in 2008. For some reason, I took my kids, 10 and 12 at the time, to see it in the theater. What they remember most about it, other than their feeling that going to see a complex financial documentary in a theater was some form of punishment, 
was that this house, this giant house, was supposed to have its own roller rink in it. What? Our basement was no roller rink, but it was a smooth concrete floor, and you could kind of go in a circle around the stairs. And when the Super Bowl ended, the Bears won 46-10, to 10, by the way, more than covering the 10.5-point spread. The game ended, and I heard the house phone ringing. I shut off all the lights in the basement, and I sat still and quiet in the cubby under the stairs as my sisters answered and began shouting my name. My uncle, undoubtedly on the line, waiting to shout an exuberant, How about them bears at me? across the long-distance connection. Uh, if you don't know what long-distance was, my millennial friends, it's kind of hard to explain. See, you used to have to pay more money for phone calls the farther away the two parties were. So if you ever got on a long-distance call, like on the holidays with distant relatives, you basically only got in two words before your dad would hiss. Hurry up, it's long-distance. Once, when I was about 10, my cousins in Chicago had called us long distance in Cleveland, and the big news we had to share was that we had gotten our first dog, Blondie. So I shared this news and then said, hang on, I'll put her on. And I set the phone down and chased after the new dog and picked her up and then put the phone by her ear and entreated her to bark. And when my dad put two and two together as to what I was doing, putting a Lhasa Apsa on the phone for a long distance phone call, well his head just about exploded. Anyway, I successfully dodged my uncle's call the night the Bears won the Super Bowl, and looking back, I honestly feel bad about it. I wish 14-year-old me would have manned up, would have taken the receiver and let him have his moment, instead of cowering in the dark in the little space below the stairs in our basement, squeaky-ass skates strapped helplessly to my shoes. But what can you do, you know? So I didn't take the call. After I was sure the call had ended, I took the skates off and snuck back upstairs and ate the rest of the Geno's pizza rolls, which weren't hot anymore, but that's okay. 15-year-old me kind of liked them lukewarm. So does 47-year-old me, by the way. There's only two things I need to tell you about the 1986 Chicago Bears, the season following their big Super Bowl win. The first is that their quarterback, Jim McMahon, showed up to training camp the next year, 25 pounds overweight, because of what Wikipedia says is, quote, the partying he did after the Super Bowl. I mean, can I can I just say, 25 pounds? What the fuck? What the heck kind of party was he at? And how long did it go on? And most importantly, did they have pizza rolls there? I bet they did. I bet McMahon ate nothing but pizza rolls for like 18 weeks. Damn, 25 pounds. The other item of note is that in September of 1986, the Chicago Bears opened their post-Super Bowl NFL regular season by hosting the Cleveland Browns at Soldier Field in Chicago. Yeah. And while the Browns of that year were arguably on the rise and would go on to finish the year at 12-4, and win their division, and come within one drive of making it to the Super Bowl, frickin' Elway. So yeah, those Browns were pretty good. But they stumbled through their opener against the Bears, who rode a 100-yard, two-touchdown performance from Walter Payton to a 41-31 victory. I was watching that game with my buddies, which was kind of a new thing for me, instead of watching it with my dad, which had been my practice. It was fun to watch with my friends, and at halftime, we'd go outside and throw a football around. The only downside, really, was no pizza rolls. 
In any case, by the time I got home that evening, there had been no phone calls from my uncle. So I went to bed thinking, all right, it's all good. Now, before I go further, I want to ask you some things about your high school for a minute. Like, did they have morning announcements? I mean, of course they probably did, right? I mean, unless you were homeschooled, but then again, maybe homeschoolers have morning announcements. I don't know. Did the kids at your school read the announcements or were they like, were they done by like an overeager vice principal? At my high school, the kids did it. We called ourselves WHSB and one guy played intro and outro music from a cassette tape while the voice talent rolled through the announcements. It was a pretty slick production for the time. I remember when some of the death metal kids in my study hall learned that I was one of the music playing guys for the announcements, they all started giving me tapes and asking me to play their stuff. I felt kind of cool, but the day after I had played a song by Testament one day, someone left a note taped to the tape player that said, no more death metal. If someone didn't show up in the morning, I got to read the announcements too. I'm kind of ashamed of this next part, but when I came across a name I couldn't pronounce, I would make up something ridiculous sounding, which I thought was a hilarious strategy. But again, looking back, I can see what a huge dick move that was. Jesus, just sound the name out, teenage Pete. Do your fucking best and honor the last name that's confusing you because it's slightly different from your own. Anyway, Fazia and Navid Ishanula, if you're listening, I am so very sorry for how I mangled your names on the announcements. You didn't deserve that. I was a total dick. In the afternoons, about five minutes before the final bell, we had afternoon announcements. You'd be finishing up your last period, and you'd hear, Bing bong. Then, please excuse the interruption, but there are a few announcements at this time. The afternoon announcements were mostly things like bus changes, after-school activity changes, and sometimes something important that hadn't made it on in the morning. There was no music in the afternoon announcements. It was usually two seniors who got out of study hall to go read them. In fact, I got this job when I was a senior. I think it was one of those deals where they couldn't find literally anyone else to do it. Sometimes my friend Jacques, whose real name is Jay, but we had French class together where he was called Jacques, which is mostly how I remember him. Jacques sometimes did the announcements with me. One day, we tried to sing the afternoon announcements to the tune of the Gilligan's Island theme song. By passenger set sail that day for a three-hour tour. A three-hour tour. The next day, when we got to the little announcements room, someone had taped a note to the mic that said, No more singing. It's tough being an innovator. But that was senior year me, who already had plenty of credits to graduate and had filled my schedule with art and shop classes. And this story is mostly about 15-year-old me, 10th grade, who was sitting in 6th period study hall, 6th period of a 9-period day, by the way. I remember that study hall in particular because instead of doing homework, I spent days and days working on an epic poem-slash-song about a garbage man named Dan, and then I spent most of my time in there illustrating it in little drawings done in blue pen. Of this seminal work, I can now only recall the chorus, which went, He's a man, a man named Dan. His best friend is a garbage can. My high school at the time was 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, so as a sophomore, I was low man on the totem pole. And just a few weeks into the year, I'm sitting in the study hall, 
working happily away on my graphic poem slash song slash novel when the loudspeaker does its bing bong bing. And we all looked up because, you know, it was only sixth period, not even close to afternoon announcements time. Then our vice principal came on. I remembered he cleared his throat right into the mic. <coughs> which, you know, the music guy usually told you not to do. Then he said this. Teachers, please send Peter Brown down to the office. Peter Brown down to the office, please. Teachers, thank you. Honestly, it didn't register that he was talking about me. For a full second, I thought, I wonder what that guy did. Then I noticed the whole study hall looking at me. And I looked back at them. And then our study hall teacher, Herr Franz, who was the German teacher, pointed her long arm at the door and said, Raus! She didn't actually say this in German. My modern-day memory wants to add that here. But most likely she just said, Peter, pack up your things and go. So I stood up and started gathering my books, and someone on the other end of the room went, Ooh! And this quickly spread across the rows of students until Miss Franz snapped, Hör auf! Actually, she said, stop it. And as I opened the door to the hallway, was adding, and I mean it. Then the door closed, and I was in the hallway all alone. It had that odd quiet of a school hallway while all the kids are in classes. Miss Franz had not given me a pass, but I guess the school-wide announcement probably had me covered. And I walked through the slanting afternoon light, down the hall to the main stairs, then down the stairs, past the senior bench, and into the main office. I always thought the office had an unusually heavy door, but it seemed even heavier on this day. I stepped into the office, and the vice principal was waiting for me with his arms crossed. I need to make a quick aside here. The vice principal was a man named Dale Diddle. I knew him mostly by sight. I'd see him almost every morning after working on the announcements. He wore thick glasses with slightly shaded lenses, and he liked to press the button to ring the bell between classes. I think this task was in general automated, but he liked to do it manually. One day, he came to our sixth period study hall and yelled at us for talking and being out of control. And when he did, he would yell the first part of his sentence and then drop into a normal voice for the second part, like, We will not tolerate talking anymore. It was kind of disconcerting. Also, it did very little to dissuade that study hall from being very chatty. The reason I am telling you about Mr. Dill is that after he was our vice principal, he moved on to a life of crime. And it's such a weird story that if I left it out of this episode, anyone who remembers him and heard of his post-Westlake High School felony convictions for things like credit card fraud and identity theft, they would surely eel me straight away and be like, you heard what happened with Mr. Diddle, right? So I think I should at least mention it, even though it hasn't any bearing, as far as I can tell, on this particular story. Anyway, Mr. Diddle's story is a crazy weird story, and Cleveland Scene Magazine devoted a huge amount of space to it in a 2003 issue. I'm going to put the link to that story in the show notes if you're interested. On this day, though, in 1986, Mr. Diddle, for all I know, was just a vice principal, a nearsighted educator who liked ringing the bell between classes. And he stood there in the office with his arms crossed, and when I came in, he asked, Are you Peter? Yes, I said. Then he nodded to the space over by the teacher mailboxes, where this older white guy with gray hair stood. He was wearing what looked like a members-only jacket in a blue Oxford. Peter Brown, he asked. Yep, I said. 
Western Union, he said. Okay, I replied. This is for you, he said, handing me an envelope. And then he made me sign my name on a sheet of paper that was on a clipboard. The envelope looked like any other business envelope. There was a Western Union logo for the return address, a clear window through which I saw the address, which consisted of my name, Westlake High School, Westlake, Ohio. Are you going to open it? Mr. Diddle asked. I nodded and tore off the end of the envelope. I pulled out a thin piece of paper, almost like the kind of paper you used to buy if you were sending international letters because it was thinner and lighter than regular paper. Is that still a thing in the world? Anyway, it was that kind of paper with a Western Union letterhead at the top and then a few lines of all caps type that looked like they had been printed by a dot matrix printer. Everything okay? Mr. Dill asked me as I looked it over. Uh-huh, I said, and then I noticed him looking at me expectantly. So I cleared my throat, I held the paper up, and I read it out loud. Dear Peter, stop. How about them bears? Stop. J.R.B. J.R.B. were my uncle's initials. He had, in point of fact, just sent me a telegram. At school, a Western Union telegram, and I had to admit that was a pretty slick move. He later told me you didn't need to add the word stop to indicate line breaks by this point in telegram technology history, but he had done so just for an added effect. Mr. Diddle furrowed his brow after I read the telegram out loud. What the hell, he said. I know, right? I said. It's from my uncle. He's a Bears fan. They just beat the Browns. Oh, said Mr. Diddle, shaking his head. I don't think I had adequately explained things to him but it seemed like he was ready to sign this off to weird sports fans, and likely deciding that me receiving telegrams at school was probably a one-off. He just said, get back to class, and he turned and walked down the hallway towards his office. I have to admit that this is one of those stories that just gets better over time. I mean, was it odd to get a telegram at school, even though telegrams were technically still a thing in the world by that point? Yeah, sure, sure it was. But in the massive communications revolution that was soon to follow, telegrams were an early casualty. Western Union delivered its last one in 2006, but I have to believe business wasn't very brisk once we had fax machines and email. And I think of all my friends from high school and our older siblings and our younger siblings and our kids and their friends, and I think I am willing to bet not a single one of them has ever received a telegram, period whether at school or not at school. They never had to sign their names on a clipboard in order to read a few dot matrix printed words on an extra thin sheet of paper. How about them bears? So while my uncle was delivering the 1986 equivalent of a sick burn, a post-win trash talkogram, he also gave me an experience that no one else I know has ever had, nor likely ever will have. And yeah, it's just a telegram, right? No big deal. But also, it's a frickin' telegram, am I right? Delivered to me at school, during my sixth period study hall. I mean, what the hell, right? What the hell? This is the property of Blue Monkey Communications and is a work of creative nonfiction audio, written and produced by me, Pete Brown. This show is written to the very best of my memory. Some music in the show comes from Brian Hake and Kevin Davison, and the closing song, I'm Not Myself, is by their band Delicious. Other audio may have been sourced from 
the websites audionautics.com, incompetech.com, the YouTube free music library, freesound.org, and podcastmusic.com. Most pieces are licensed under Creative Commons. Please see the show notes at PeteBrownSays.com for complete attribution. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. And as always, thanks for your time listening today. Good times, everyone. Even my friends steer clear.